Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hey everyone, Brian and Meredith here, and this week, Reach is excited to present an episode of fellow Soundsington Media Show, Unspookable, the perfect podcast for the Halloween season. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Charlie Charlie game was real or just a trick people played at school? And if Ouija boards actually worked? Each episode of the podcast, Unspookable, looks at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the stories behind the scares. Make sure you subscribe to Unspookable now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, on to the show. Soundington Media! In a bright, airy room, many people are at work as the noonday sun moves waves of heat past already sweaty foreheads. Someone carves, someone paints, someone writes, someone draws. In the next room, kept from the heat in shade and shadow, a body lies wrapped in many layers of fresh linen. The workers, many of them high priests, are close to completing their months-long labor, a funeral like no other. The mummy in the next room will have many things buried with them, to sustain them, to guide them, to protect them, to judge them, and to celebrate them. But this is not a funeral to simply bury the dead person, or for the living to mourn them. No, this is the type of funeral that will make them a god. I'm Elise Parisian, and this is Unspookable. Think that a mummy is someone who died in Egypt and was buried in a pyramid. A mummy is a person that has had special treatment then wrapped in like paper basically and a movie mummy is when they come back to life it's a dead guy that's wrapped in toilet paper to me a mummy looks like it almost looks like toilet paper but i know that it isn't And I know that they're put in some sort of casket thing and buried underground in a pyramid. When I think of ancient Egypt and mummies, I think of King Tut and, like, shiny gold stuff. Um, it honestly kind of reminds me of, like, cats because of that gold cat Egypt thing. When I hear the word mummy, I don't just think of, like, mummies that have come back to life. I think of... Like the mummies in pyramids and like the Egyptian kings because they would make the Egyptian kings into mummies because they thought there was an afterlife. Creepy. From ancient Egypt. Another thing that it would remind me of is sand. Pyramids. Oh, and the desert. 
What's your take on mummies? Are they scary? Weird? Creepy? Kinda cool? What does your imagination conjure up with the word mummy? For some of us, we might picture a person wrapped in a full roll of toilet paper, with only their eyes peeking out while they bound down the street with a trick-or-treat pumpkin in hand. Maybe we picture a figure with their arms outstretched, stumbling through the desert sand with dirty bandages dragging behind them. Or maybe we picture a dark tomb, with a body safely wrapped and enclosed in a glittering sarcophagus. There are many associations we have with mummies, and it's no secret that a lot of these images come from hundreds of years of modern fascination with the world of ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptians practiced mummification as part of their religious burial customs. Egypt, located in the northeast corner of the continent of Africa, experiences almost no measurable rainfall. It is likely that some of the earliest mummification of buried bodies was accidental. Dry sand and air preserved people buried in desert graves. Many scholars believe that Egyptians began to purposefully mummify their dead around 2600 BC, during what is known as the 4th and 5th dynasties of ancient Egypt. For the next 2,000 years, the process was developed and refined, with the quality and technique of the mummification dependent on the social status and wealth of the person being buried. In general, mummifying a body for burial took about 70 days. The priests who oversaw this process had to be knowledgeable about the religious rituals it entailed, but they also had to be experts in anatomy and physiology. Each part of the body that would rapidly decay needed to be carefully removed, starting with the brain. One of the most important parts of mummification was making sure the person still looked like themselves. The people preparing the body needed to remove the brain and other organs without making too many large, visible cuts. So the brain was removed using special hooked tools that extracted pieces through the person's nostrils. A creative solution to be sure, but kind of a shuddery one, don't you think? In various time periods, organs like the heart, lungs, or stomach would have been removed and either kept in what we now call canopic jars, or embalmed separately and placed back in the person's body through an incision down their side. After the organs were cared for, the embalming of the entire body could begin. Embalming simply means preserving from decay, and the method that these priests often used was to cover the body in natron, a salt with great drying properties. Once the moisture was removed, the salt was gently washed off, and the wrapping process, the part we all recognize, would start. Each mummy required hundreds of yards of linen fabric, layered with things like protective amulets, resin, and casts, or masks, to fill out parts of the body. And even after all that, the mummy itself was only a small part of the work. What was the rest of the work, you might ask? Well, this is where we really get into it. The Book of the Dead. Many people think of the Book of the Dead as a collection of rituals, spells, or prayers made for the person being buried to help their soul journey to the afterlife. Perhaps you've heard about one of the most famous Egyptian burials, that of King Tutankhamun, or King Tut, whose tomb in the Valley of the Kings was unearthed nearly intact by archaeologists in 1922. King Tut died in 1325 BC, after his rule as pharaoh during the 18th dynasty. His tomb contained over 5,000 artifacts, 
pretty much unheard of as thousands of years of weather, grave robbers, and other interference usually meant that archaeologists didn't find burial grounds in their original state. King Tut's tomb provides a great example of the detail involved in writing the person for the afterlife. He was buried with food, clothes, wine, tools, furniture, all things that we would use in life. This is where the Book of the Dead comes in. In order to use and enjoy these things, the person buried would need to be tested by gods, protected from evil, and come into the next phase of their lives. You see, that's what many of us have not realized about the Book of the Dead. It's, in fact, not a book at all. And what's more, rather than being about someone like King Tut's death, a truer translation of the rituals that were collected for funeral rites during this time would be spells for going forth by day. And that's because the goal of these spells was not to get someone to the afterlife, it was to make them immortal, to let them walk again in the daylight, in the realm of the gods. More on that as soon as we get back. I have never heard of the Book of the Dead, but to me, I feel like it would be about a lot of, like, mummies and who were and some royalty in ancient Egypt. I have no idea what the Book of the Dead is, but it reminded me of someone talking about, like, a show or a movie that they saw, and it was a book, and, like, you wrote people's names in it. I think it's a book from ancient Egypt about mummies. A spell um, is, like, I guess something that you can put on someone and then, like, kill their family or something. But I wouldn't believe that could ever happen. A spell is something that you can use against other people or to help people. Like, let's just say you were against someone, you could use magic, like a spell to turn them into a frog or something. And I'm, I don't really believe in it, but at the same time, I kind of do. I think a spell is um, magic. And it's not real because magic isn't real. I think the only reason I don't believe in it is because it scares me. <laughs> Same. And like I don't want any, I don't want a TikTok witch to put a spell on me. A spell is a thing that witches and wizards would do. It's like magic, like rituals that they think would like raise the dead and stuff. Like, part of their religion. You're inside a pyramid. It's dark and dry. And you've had to dig down far into the sand, just to reach a door to a narrow hallway. The sand is constantly threatening to pour in on you. You're holding a torch that lights the path as you walk forward in the dark. Then you emerge into a wide room. Almost impossibly wide for what the small pyramid looks like from the outside. You hold up the torch to the wall that stretches up many feet above you into the darkness, and every single inch of it is covered in writing. For the ancient Egyptian ruler buried here, this was his Book of the Dead. Not really a book at all, right? The objects we know today as books are fairly recent concepts in human history. Before we had the technology to print and bind pages like you see them today, people made something called a codex, where long sheets of parchment were folded and cut 
to produce pages that could be stitched together in groups. Before that, though, paper was handmade in long sheets that were usually rolled into scrolls. During long stretches of ancient Egyptian history, priests writing down spells for books of the dead would have done so on scrolls made of papyrus. It would take weeks just to harvest, trim, flatten, and dry the papyrus plant into sheets that could then be written on. It wasn't until much later, somewhere around 200 AD, that codexes were stitched together with covers made of wood or leather, like we would see in a modern book. But before any of that, the surviving books of the dead we have are mostly carved into the walls of the burial chambers themselves. So for many thousands of years, the examples that we have of books of the dead are on all sorts of surfaces and materials, not really parts of books at all. The spells for going forth by day could be carved into walls or written on papyrus scrolls, certainly, but they could also be written anywhere, on the layers of the mummy, like the linen bandages, the mummy casing, the coffin, and the sarcophagus, or they could be on statues or stelas placed in the tomb. Just as the mummy was literally wrapped in layers before being buried, so too were they wrapped in the layers of spells that the tomb could hold. Sometimes, a spell would be written in multiple places, just in case one version of it failed. The spells were often written in hieroglyphs, the Egyptian written language, which combines symbols, syllables, and elements of an alphabet into a writing system with over 1,000 unique characters, or sometimes in hieratic script, a form of Egyptian writing that was more shorthand and slightly less formal. So what did these spells contain? Many of them begin with the word ro, which translates to spell, utterance, mouth, incantation, or even chapter, as in a book. The spells cover a wide range of purposes, but all of them worked together to assist the dead person in their transformation. The Egyptians believed that humans are made up of three parts, the body, the ba, and the ka. The ba and the ka are parts of what some of us might describe as a soul. When a person died, the body remained where it was buried. The ka went back from where it had come to be with the gods. And the ba awakened within the dead person's body to begin the journey to be reunited with the ka. Part of this journey could be understood as traveling towards Aket, the horizon, a junction between earth, sky, and duat, the realm of the dead, which is ruled over by the god of the underworld, Osiris. The hieroglyph for Aket represents the sun rising over a mountain. If the Ba could join the Ka, then this transformation at the horizon, the place of rebirth, could take place, and the person could transform into their Ak, their resurrected higher form. But the ability of the Ba to reunite with the Ka depended on the strength of the spells and the precision of the funerary rites observed. Some scholars have pointed out that the way we might title these collections to understand what they would have meant to the ancient Egyptians would be something like spells of transfiguration. Transfiguration meaning a complete transformation of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. To the Egyptians, only the body was dead. The rest of the person was transforming into the next life. However, if the spells did not work, then the person would become Mutu, truly dead, 
and unable to transform. Because the earliest examples are written into the walls of pyramids, these versions of Book of the Dead spells have come to be known as the pyramid texts. In the tomb of King Unas in Saqqara from around 2400 BC, a pyramid much like the one we imagined before, with hieratic writing covering the walls. American Egyptologist James Allen translated this piece of spell text. Your son Horus has acted for you. The Great Ones will shake, having seen the knife in your arm as you emerge from the duat. Greetings, experienced one. Jeb has created you. The Ennead has given you birth. Horus has become content about his father. Atum has become content about his years. The Eastern and Western gods have become content about the great thing that has happened in his embrace, the god's birth. It is Unas. Unas see. It is Unas. Unas look. It is Unas hear. It is Unas. Unas exist. It is Unas. Unas raise yourself from your side. Here, the spell references Horus, god of kingship and the sky, as well as Jeb, god of the earth, and Atum a god of creation and possibility, the first god in the oldest Egyptian belief systems. The Ennead is a reference to a collection of nine gods that include Jeb, Atum, and the other most important deities. At times, the buried king is even identified as Osiris Unas, pointing to the idea that should the spells work, the king could, in a way, become this god. The pyramid texts of the Old Kingdom eventually led to what are known as the Coffin Texts in Egypt's Middle Kingdom years, around 2050 to 1710 BC. During this time, examples of Book of the Dead spells were found carved into or written directly on the coffins that mummies were placed in. Though in many cases, archaeologists have found the coffins of kings and other high-ranking officials to be the best preserved, writing onto coffins meant that even people who couldn't afford pyramids or other burial chambers have records of their spells last for thousands of years. Many of the coffin texts emphasize the relationship of the deceased to the underground realm of Osiris, hoping to prevent the person from dying a second death, falling prey to the many traps and threats lurking there. In one text, the sun god Ra says, Hail in peace! I repeat to you the good deeds which my own heart did for me from within the serpent coil, in order to silence strife. I made the four winds that every man might breathe in his time. I made the great inundation that the humble might benefit by it like the great. I made every man like his fellow, and I did not command that they do wrong. It is their hearts which disobey what I have said. I have created the gods from my sweat and the people from the tears of my eye. The deceased then replies, I shall sail rightly in my bark, I am Lord of Eternity in the crossing of the sky. I am not afraid in my limbs, for who and hike overthrow for me that evil being. I shall see light land, I shall dwell in it. Make way for me that I may see Nun and Amun, for I am that Ak who passes by the guards. I am equipped and effective in opening this portal. As for any person who knows this spell, he will be like Ray in the eastern sky. Like Osiris in the netherworld, he will go down to the circle of fire without the flame touching him ever. So in this way, the spell is kind of like a script for a performance. The person trying to gain transformation for their new life must have this text ready 
wherever they are buried to perform the rituals correctly. It is important to note that the coffin texts and the pyramid texts aren't necessarily completely different versions of Book of the Dead spells. They're more like representations of different ways of communicating them that seem to have been more popular during their respective time periods. There are thousands of unique spells from the pyramid, coffin, and later codex and scroll texts. You might think of many of all the unique versions like you would a recipe for chicken noodle soup or chocolate chip cookies. Many of us can recognize what those foods are, but the way that I make them could be very different from the way you or your Aunt Millie make them. There could be thousands of slightly different chocolate chip cookie recipes in the world that still accomplish close to the same thing. So too with these spells. The same ritual could be written a little differently for each person. Some of the rituals might be more familiar to those of us who have heard about Egyptian beliefs. Things like the opening of the mouth, and the weighing of the heart. But have you ever heard of the spells that, say, stop you from walking upside down in the afterlife? Prevent you from being eaten by snakes? Or even help you cross a burning lake guarded by four potentially evil baboons? That's coming up next. Places I've heard of mummies is, like, in Hotel Transylvania, so in movies, um... I see them often in video games that I play. Like, one year I was playing Minecraft. They don't have it anymore. But around Halloween time, they used to have mummies. At least that's what I remember. I've seen a movie with a mummy in it. And the movie's called Monster Squad. And the classic Universal Mummy series. During Halloween, that's when I mostly hear of mummies. And last year for a Halloween party in my class, Um, they wrapped people up in toilet paper and we wrapped our teacher up in layers and layers of toilet paper to try and make her look like a mummy. And then we put a bunch of dirt on her to make it kind of look like um, decaying wraps. Let's say you're a noble person or even a priest living during the beginning of the New Kingdom in ancient Egypt, around 1550 to 50 BC. This is the time that these spells started to actually take on a more book-like form in codexes or on rolls of papyrus. Archaeological discoveries from this time are what gave the spells the name Book of the Dead in the first place, as they tend to have more order and structure, though they can vary widely. So, you're a priest, and you've spent most of your life preparing other people's books, so you've seen a lot of examples. Every day you go to the spell library to do your research, in order to make even better more powerful versions of the spells that people ask you to make for their burials. Knowing everything you know, what would you choose for your own book? What would be the most important thing? Making sure your senses worked? Or that wild animals couldn't disturb your grave? Or that you would know how to eat? Or even, yes, go to the bathroom in the next life? One of the most common parts of the Book of the Dead is known as the opening of the mouth ceremony part of a larger group of spells that preserved and protected the body, the opening of the mouth ceremony allowed the person to be able to eat, drink, and speak again. One translation goes like this. My mouth is opened by Ptah. My mouth's bonds are loosed by my city god. Tote has come fully equipped with spells. He looses the bonds of Seth from my mouth. Autumn has given me hands. They are placed as guardians. My mouth is given to me, My mouth is opened by Ptah, with that chisel of metal, 
with which he opened the mouth of the gods. I am Sekhmet Wajet, who dwells in the west of heaven. I am Sait, among the souls of An. In the ceremonial part of this spell, a priest would use a metal aids, a tool that could open the mouth, and sometimes the leg of an animal, like a calf, would be held to the mouth painted on the coffin. Just the opening of the mouth part of the process could contain over 70 different parts. In the weighing of the heart, the dead person would present their bad deeds, or hopefully lack thereof, to a panel of some 42 judges and have to address them all by name. Then their heart would be weighed on a scale against the feather of ma'at, a representation of truth, balance, and order. If the heart was equal to the feather, the dead person could proceed to the next test. But if it was heavier, the person's heart would be eaten by Amit, a demon goddess made of part crocodile, part lion, and part hippopotamus. And the dead person's ba would be dead forever. If the whole eating of the heart problem isn't enough, a further judgment ritual said that the deceased would approach a lake of fire guarded by four baboons. If the baboons deemed them evil, they would be burned. But if they passed, they would receive nourishment for the rest of their journey. And baboons weren't even the only creepy creatures involved. There are spells to protect from crocodiles, from the apshe, a god of insects, and there are at least five different spells to protect against snakes, including singing snakes. Orerek, snake, take yourself off, for Jeb protects me. Get up, for you have eaten a mouse, which Ra detests, and you have chewed the bones of a putrid cat. Essentially, anything you could meet in this life, you might also meet in the next. The more preparation, the more likely you would arrive intact and ready to walk into the light. We've said it before on Unspookable, and we'll probably say it again. Death is complicated. It's confusing and mysterious, and sometimes it makes us anxious. It is also, of course, spooky, which is why we talk about it so much on this show. Although we share lots of qualities, human beings experience our own humanity, our own lives, very differently. And that, in turn, gives us different understandings of what death is. These ideas may be connected to our religion, our family, our spirituality, our research, or any number of other things. Just as each person should get to decide how to lead their life, they also should get to decide what it will mean for them to no longer be alive, or in some cases, what the next stage of living, not on this earth, will look like. That's what the ancient Egyptians were doing. Where many of us might think of life and death as opposites, or might think of our experience right now as life, which could be followed by an afterlife of some kind, the Egyptians seem to have been thinking about it more like, well, I have this life now, but then if I prepare correctly, I get to level up. I get a more expansive, immortal life. Of course, a ruler like King Tut, who could spend lots of money on that preparation, and almost certainly had enslaved people building his tomb, probably had a much easier time getting things ready. For every one tomb like King Tut's, there were thousands upon thousands of regular people whose versions of these funerary spells have been lost to time, perhaps because they were written on materials that decayed long ago, or perhaps because they were only able to be spoken. Who knows what could have been contained in the burial sites of 5,000 years ago, the ones we will never get to see. 
What ritual, what magic, what fearful, dangerous, or amazing powers? In one of the spells for which these collections are named, a spell for going forth by day, the deceased must say, May I have power in my heart, may I have power in my arms, may I have power in my legs, may I have power in my mouth. May I have power over invocation offerings, may I have power over water, air, streams, and lands. And then, if everything is done properly, that is the power they will be granted as they walk into their transformed life. Isn't that, in some ways, what all humans are after? The power to decide our own fate? In this life, or the next, if that's something we believe in? It might seem confusing to some of us that the ancient Egyptians could spend great amounts of time in this life preparing for another life. Didn't they know they could be focusing on the life they were living right then? But that's what's so spooky, isn't it? That's what we can never tell. Maybe the life we are in right now is impossibly short compared to what's waiting for us on the other side of the desert horizon. Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condon, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen. Special thanks this week to our guests Desmond, Blythe, and Al. If you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends. You can leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice, or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, you can find Unspookable on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us for a peek behind the scenes and for updates on the show. Unspookable is a production of Soundsington Media, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. 